1: Welcome, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. You all have been asking me for a good mystery, and this is definitely one, maybe the largest mystery cold case that the FBI has ever dealt with here in the United States. Today we have with us Darren Schaefer, and he has a podcast called The Cooper Vortex. And on that podcast, he brings in guests who are very, very familiar with the FBI case and the search for the true identity of D.B. Cooper. And Darren's going to get us straightened out on who D.B. Cooper was, for those of you who may not know, and what this Cooper Vortex is all about. How are you doing today, Darren?
0: Pretty good, John. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
1: You bet. Our pleasure. Would you please introduce yourself and what got you into uh, studying and learning about D.B. Cooper? Yeah. Let's do it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So... Uh, about 5-6 years ago I was living in Woodland, Washington uh, and I got the book Skyjack by Jeffrey Gray as a gift. Uh, just sort of interested in D.B. Cooper just because it was a local story. A woodland's probably the closest town to the supposed drop zone. And I read Skyjack and in Skyjack it sort of leads to another book about D.B. Cooper. Uh, so I looked and that book was available. I read that one and started getting on the forums online and read book after book you know i probably have read uh, 15 books on the subject at this point in time uh, and and spent a lot of time reading on on the forums and online it's easy to see
1: why they call it a vortex right i guess once you get exposed to it you kind of get sucked into it
0: oh yeah absolutely that's why it's the vortex you know once you get sucked in you can't get out of it
1: Why don't you explain what happened and when it when it was, what happened and what the situation was at the time?
0: Yeah, so it was uh, November 24th, 1971, uh, the day before Thanksgiving, uh, Portland International Airport. A man going uh, a man in a business suit with a trench coat goes up to the ticket counter and buys a ticket from Portland to Seattle in cash. It was twenty dollars. Uh, He didn't have to show ID or anything, so he just wrote his name on the ticket. And the name he wrote on the ticket was Dan Cooper. Uh, And then he supposedly boarded the plane last for Seattle. And then shortly after takeoff, he hands a stewardess a note. And she assumed it was just another businessman hitting on her. So she put the note in her pocket and didn't look at it. Uh, A few minutes goes by and he grabs her and says, Ma'am, you might want to look at that note. I have a bomb. Uh, the note said that he had a bomb, and he wanted $200,000 and four parachutes, two back parachutes and two front chutes, commonly known as reserves on the front chutes. So they kind of scrambled, and then the, the pilot phones into air traffic control to relay the demands to the FBI. D.B. Cooper was careful to get his notes back while he was on the plane. The FBI sort of scrambles, and... And tries to get him his money and his parachutes. Uh, the the plane just circles over Seattle until they can do it. It was only supposed to be about a forty five minute flight, but uh, the plane was in the air for two and a half three hours, something like that. And then they just told the passengers that they were just trying to burn off some fuel before landing, which I don't I don't know that that logic really makes sense, but <laughs> that's what they told him at the time. Um, and then once on the ground. They had the, the stewardess go out, get him his money, get him his parachutes. Once he had that, then they let the passengers off the plane.
1: Now, the ground, uh, the ground was the same airport from which they left, or was it a different one?
0: No, it was the Seattle airport. So they flew from Portland to Seattle. He makes his demands. They actually land in Seattle, let the passengers off. Um, and then Cooper has some very specific flight instructions from there. Uh, He wanted the plane to take off from Seattle to fly to Mexico City. He wanted the plane to stay at or about 10,000 feet. He wanted the landing gear down. He wanted the plane depressurized and the flaps set to 15 degrees. They relay that information to air traffic control again from the ground. And in that setup, they didn't have enough fuel to fly to Mexico City. So what they did is they debated with Cooper about where they were going to fly to. I think Reno and, and Sacramento, I think, was the other city brought up. And he said, you know, Reno would be fine. We'll stop in Reno uh, to refuel. And then the air stairs were down, and he said that they should take off with the air stairs down. The pilot said that wasn't possible. They talked to air traffic. Air traffic said it's just not safe to take off with the air stairs down. Uh, and he says, you know, it's fine. Uh, it's safe to do that. But I'm not going to argue with you. I'll just lower them in air. Uh, And then the pilots weren't even sure that the rear air stairs could be lowered in air if the plane would fly, if it would cause the plane to crash. Air traffic, they weren't aware of it either. They weren't sure. So they contacted Boeing um, and Boeing said, yes, that is possible. We've been doing some tests on that and the rear air stairs can be deployed in flight. So it's interesting that Cooper seemed to know more about the plane than the pilots themselves. Uh, and then they they take off from Seattle, um, I believe just close to 8 o'clock uh, when they took off from Seattle. And then the stewardess asks him if he needs anything. She kind of shows him how to lower the rear air stairs. Uh, and then he instructs her to go back into the cockpit. As she's going to the cockpit, she sees him put on one of the parachutes and mentions that It looks like he's done this many times before. And then when they land in Reno, they land with the rear air stairs down, and there's no D.B. Cooper in the airplane, or no Dan Cooper uh, in the airplane.
1: Now, at any point, did he show them the bomb?
0: He did. Um, He opened the briefcase that he had, and the stewardess said it appeared to to look like a bomb to her. Uh, A bunch of red sticks and some wiring. Most people who've investigated the story believe the bomb wasn't real. You know, D.B. Cooper stayed calm and collected the whole time. He had two bourbon and sodas on the plane. He paid for both of them. And, um, and
1: didn't leave fingerprints? So I assume he was wearing gloves?
0: You know, I don't believe they ever found any fingerprints. There were uh, those two glasses, uh, or it could have been the same glass that they just refilled, but... No fingerprints from that. He smoked uh, eight cigarettes, I believe, while he was on the plane. Uh, and they actually collected those cigarettes. And this is something I've learned and in the last week.
1: No, no, no. Uh,
0: but they collected them. And a bunch of people have said that they got lost. Well, uh, another researcher, Bill Rollins, he actually sent me this uh, FBI document from a Freedom of Information Act. And it says in the documents, once we collect the cigarette butts, examine them for any evidence, and then throw them in the garbage. So they, they had them and then chose to throw them away. Uh, there was no DNA evidence in, in 1971, so you don't know what you don't know. Wow.
1: Mm. So when he, when he jumped, he took his briefcase with him and the Looked money his, bag? What else did he have with him?
0: Uh, he took the briefcase with him. Uh, he took the money bag with him, um, he had a, a paper sack or a, a green canvas bag, uh, I'm not really sure, with him, uh, supposedly about the size of a, a paper sack or a lunch bag or something, took that with him. The only thing he left on the plane was he had a black clip-on tie, and that was left on the seat, uh, on the airplane, and that's, that's really the only evidence left behind.
1: Looking at, the, looking at the scant evidence trail, and I assume obviously the name uh, Dan Cooper didn't check out as far as the FBI was concerned. Uh, where well, the he... Dan
0: Cooper name is interesting for several reasons. So he says his name is Dan Cooper. And then once they get all the passengers off the plane in Seattle, the first thing they did was, you know, look at the log. There's one passenger missing, uh, one name, Dan Cooper. So they look about people in the area to see if that name matches anyone. It matched uh, some petty crook who went by the name D.B. Cooper. And somehow that went over uh, the AP wire and that name started to be reported. Uh, And I think that was the FBI chose not to correct that uh, because if you knew or had any inside information, uh, you would know that Dan Cooper was the name given, not D.B. Cooper. Another interesting thing about Dan Cooper is there is a French Canadian Belgian comic book by the name Dan Cooper uh, about a skydiving hero test pilot. Uh, so there's a lot of speculation did he choose to use that name? Uh, I, I like to believe he did because it makes the story even better.
1: <laughs> now, after that, after that happened, where did the FBI begin with that? How did they investigate it? And what finally led to the discovery, as I hear, of at least a portion of the money?
0: Well, the FBI, uh, it begins their investigation right away. Uh, the only real clue they had about where he jumped out was at about 8.13 in the flight. Um, the pilot noted a pressure bump in the cabin Um, And then the plane kind of curtsied a little bit enough to have to cause a correction. So they noted that and then where the plane was. So they they figured that's most likely the drop zone. They did another test with the plane. They put a 200 pound weight on the rear air stairs out over the ocean and then dumped it off to see if they could reproduce that pressure bump um, and then that little action the plane took and it did. So they had an idea of where they believe DB Cooper jumped out of the plane. So because he jumped out the day before Thanksgiving, you know he had a long weekend. If he did land in the woods, to make it out, get back to work, get back to civilization by Monday. Um, so the FBI didn't have anyone on the ground for over forty-eight hours looking for him. You know where he jumped out. It's it's a mixture of kind of dense woods and then farmland, agricultural land.
1: Where where exactly is that in
0: the U.S.? Uh, In Washington State, it's near Ariel, uh, Washington, Amboy, Washington, uh, Yakult, real small towns, real small towns.
1: What were the biggest clues the FBI had?
0: They didn't have a lot of clues. They just knew, or they thought they knew about where he jumped, and all they could do really was search the woods for him. They had, at one point, hundreds of men from the National Guard searching the woods, just stomping around looking for them. There's Lake Merwin that's over there. I believe they had scuba divers in there looking for them and everything. Mm. Um, they had the SR-71 Blackbird, which was top secret at the time, flew over twice looking for and photographing the area for any evidence of a parachute or anything like that. and they never found anything they actually found a body but it was the body of a teenage girl i believe
1: why did he ask for extra shoots
0: i think the reason he asked for extra shoots was so that there was no chance they would sabotage it by asking for multiple shoots the fbi has to theorize is he taking a passenger with him Uh, and if he is then they can't afford to sabotage the shoot because then you know they could be on the hook for murder at that point
1: you mentioned early on there were, there were different types of chutes, yet he chose one certain type. Did that Does that indicate anything?
0: I think it does. Uh, he got two different types of chutes, because in 1971, skydiving wasn't a super popular hobby, uh, not like it is today. So they ended up getting him two different types of main chutes, um, and there's some debate on exactly what type, but it's a, an older military chute. And then there was a more modern sport chute that was steerable. Um, And if you were an expert on the subject and you were going to jump out of an airplane, most people say you should take the sport chute. It's controllable. You can kind of see where you're going. He did jump at night and in the rain. So it wasn't the best conditions for a sport chute jump. But he chose the military chute, the older military chute. I believe most likely because he was familiar with that type of parachute. I've also heard people say that, you know, maybe that was the right type of chute because it was a stronger, much more durable chute. You know, you're jumping out at close to 200 miles an hour. A sport chute really is not designed to do that. Uh, So it could have just failed uh, immediately and he'd plummet to his death. So maybe choosing the military one wasn't just for comfort reasons. Or, what he was comfortable with, it was the right choice based on the speed of the plane.
1: So, he didn't have a reserve shoot. He just had that one.
0: He took a reserve shoot, but the reserve shoot that he took was a dummy shoot. He took one that had an X zone in it that was for demonstration and practice purposes.
1: Why but did, they, why did really they give him that one?
0: They didn't mean to give him that one. Uh, so if was he, kind if he of re- didn't
1: know better and chose that, he'd, he would have been toast.
0: Well, he did. He chose the dummy reserve. So if his main chute failed, yeah, the reserve wasn't going to do anything, sewn shut.
1: <laughs> now, the FBI, uh, the only real direction they could go was to try to find employees of Boeing, maybe that had a, a grudge, uh, or, or uh, possibly guys who were, uh, had paramilitary experience. Um, where did they go on that? Did they find anything close? Did they have any suspects?
0: They had a lot of suspects. And like you said, uh, people who had military experience, people who worked for Boeing, um, and then the small crowd of people who were doing sport parachuting at the time. Um, So, you know, when I've looked into drop zones in the areas, which sport parachutes call it, most of those people uh, had contact with the FBI. Uh, The FBI came to a lot of those Parachute clubs and drop zones. You know, just asking around, you know. We think DB Cooper could be a sport parachutist. Maybe he had some military experience. Uh, They claim to have investigated thousands of different suspects in the case.
1: What was the next big development? Was was that the finding of the money? And and how many years was that after? And where did that happen? And who found it?
0: That was was the next big development. Uh, Nine years later, at Tina Bar, off the Columbia River outside Vancouver, Washington. Uh, An eight-year-old boy was having a picnic with his family. He scooped some sand away uh, to make a place for a fire. And as he did that with his arm, he stumbled across a couple of bundles of money. um, And they were still in the rubber band. When he picked them up, uh, supposedly the rubber bands crumbled. The money was in poor shape. Uh, they went home and tried to to clean it and separate it, uh, to no no result. Uh, and then they contacted the FBI, and the FBI said, "Oh yeah, that is DB Cooper's money, uh, based on the serial number." So then the FBI went and uh, excavated the area, looking for maybe a body, maybe more money, whatever they could find. Uh, it was it was just that that fifty eight hundred dollars that was found there, um, and. They couldn't come up with a, an explanation for how it got there. And of all the researchers I've talked to, there there isn't a good explanation uh, for how that money got there.
1: That wasn't the bag he jumped with then, I assume. So he had to have put no. that bag somewhere.
0: No, it wasn't the bag. And, and Tina Barr is, I don't know, 10 miles west of where the flight path was. So even if as he jumped out of the plane, if money went flying or... Um, he, he lost it or even he landed at Tina bar. It just doesn't seem possible at all that he would land west of the flight path.
1: No, that's really strange. I mean, he didn't have the bag that was found. He didn't have with him on his person. Uh, it was just him. It was a briefcase and it was the, uh, reserve chute, and the military chute, and the money bag of which I assume there was one. Is that correct? So yep. he didn't have any of that. He landed in the middle of nowhere, so he had to have gotten to civilization, come back mm-hmm. to that bar, and then buried that bag. Which, which I, I, does, has anybody tried to make sense of that?
0: Yes, people have tried to make sense of that, and there just isn't a good way to do it. Uh, it's either you know the money is either a plant, somebody put it there on purpose after the fact. He landed at Tina Bar or near Tina Bar, and then chose to bury it there which, it's so far outside the flight path, that doesn't really make sense. Or, he landed somewhere near the Columbia River, the money floated downstream. Uh, Tom K actually tried to reproduce that on a certain level. Uh, He bundled up 25 ones together with a laminated card that said, hey, I'm doing an experiment, if you find this card or the money, give me a call. And they put it outside the Washougal River watershed, Uh, Because that was theorized, you know, that's the only way it could end up on Tina Bar is it floated all the way down from the Washougal River watershed. They planted the money there. It only made it a mile or two um, before some kids playing around in the river found that little card and, and gave Tom a call.
1: Did Cooper coordinate at all with the pilot as to where and when or as to when he wanted to leave that plane? And did he know geographically? where he was. And the reason I'm asking that is there a possibility that if he had timed it and knew fairly well what the air currents and everything else were, that maybe he could arrange a pickup.
0: I've thought about that quite a bit. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Um, it seems like a good idea, but it was night, it was raining. Um, uh, and so they would have been probably just above the cloud cover. So even if he could see, he wouldn't really have seen the ground. There may be some lights or or markers he could use as a reference. But it would have been really difficult to communicate that. I mean, in 1971, there were no cell phones. There was no internet. So if you jumped out of a plane and landed in a field or in the woods, I mean, what are you going to do to communicate with someone? Even a handheld CB radio at the time wouldn't have gone very far at all.
1: He was really rolling the dice. He's jumping at night, in the rain, uh, not knowing what kind of winds he was facing over over the northwest U.S. At the very least, we can say, knowing that that's going to be covered with a lot of tall trees, which makes that jump very, very dangerous. He was really rolling the dice there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's so interesting that he, everyone reported that he was calm, cool, and collected the whole time. And that's something I just find so fascinating. I mean, a, a dude who people are saying was in his mid-40s, which is unique for a man that age to be committing a crime like this at all, and then was able to keep his cool the whole time, knowing that he's going to jump out in the darkness into the woods.
1: He sounds like a pilot type. Talk about some of the guests that you had on. I, I heard, I heard one of your shows. I thought it was excellent, and it was the, I think it was called the tie.
0: Yeah, so let's start with Cooper that one and maybe go through
1: some of your other guests as well.
0: Uh, I've had a lot of really great D.B. Cooper researchers on. Um, my very first episode was with Bruce Smith. D.B. Cooper was Special Forces. And a lot of people refer to Bruce Smith as the mayor of Cooperville. I mean, he's been working on this story forever. He knows the ins and the outs. Uh, and then he knows a lot of the suspects. So, because there's so little information known about D.B. Cooper, you can plug a lot of different guys into the known facts. I mean, really, all that's known about him is he was in his mid 40s. Uh, some people say he had an olive complexion, a swarthy complexion. At this point, you could fit a lot of guys into the physical description. And the two descriptions, uh, the two sketches, look pretty different. Uh, you have kind of like a Bing Crosby looking sketch and a, a Cary Grant sort of looking sketch. So you could even fit one suspect to one or the other. So a lot of the people I've, I've spoken to have a particular suspect in mind. And that's what they're a real expert on. Uh, Bruce Smith is actually an expert on, on many of the suspects. But I, I had Bruce Smith on. Uh, Robert Blevins, who is a proponent that Kenny Christensen, who worked for the airline that was hijacked as a suspect um eric ulis he is a proponent of sheridan peterson who is still alive uh, as, as db cooper robert blevins who's a, a proponent of kenny christensen like i was saying kenny christensen's a pretty interesting suspect he was a military paratrooper um, and then worked for northwest orient airline as a purser which is a title that's I don't think think's around anymore but i believe he was sort of in charge of the flight crew was his job and when they said db cooper had a grudge not against that particular airline just a grudge in general he was upset kenny christensen about some going on with the union and pay and whatnot at the time it would be interesting that he hijacked an airplane from his own airline he could have been recognized by the flight crew he does match the physical description of the Bing Crosby sketch, but Kenny Christensen continued to work for that airline for decades after the hijacking. So, I mean, if you were the one that did it, would you continue to work for the same airline for 20 plus years after the fact?
1: Well, let's say, let's say you had a kid who needed an operation and that was going to cost you 200,000. So, you know, easy come, easy go.
0: Yeah, I, and Kenny Christensen had some unexplained money when he passed away. Uh he on his deathbed sort of said to his brother, I have something to tell you. Uh and his brother was said, don't worry about it. Uh it's n- it's not a big deal. And he he never told him. Um and then he had a friend that Robert Blevins believes was involved. Uh Bernie Geesman and which is sort of a, a suspicious character, but a lot of people say the evidence that he worked for the airline for 20 years after and was a union rep and everything. So he was quite involved with the company. Just seems could be unlikely.
1: Did he have an alibi?
0: No, I, I don't believe he did at the time. Uh, I don't think he was a suspect at all until after he had passed away, which many, many of the suspects aren't <laughs> weren't involved until after. Uh, and Robert Blevins said that the FBI didn't really look into airline employees because the FBI believed they were a cut above the average person at the time.
1: They were ignoring the but, fact that this guy knew about that, that drop gate. I mean, he, oh, had, yeah. he had knowledge of Boeing. That didn't come from nowhere.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: So the FBI kind of ignored that?
0: I don't think they ignored that. Uh, they They definitely looked into every lead they can. I mean, they've said they've investigated thousands of people.
1: Tell me about the guest you had on and the story about the tie. What details did he relate to you about that story?
0: Well, Tom Kay has done pretty much, I I believe, the only forensic work on the case, as far as I'm aware. Um, In around 2007, there was a new agent that was assigned the case, uh, Larry Carr. And he... He had a pretty unorthodox style, so he actually got onto one of the forums that was being used uh, on the Drop Zone, which is a skydiving forum that had like this subsection about D.B. Cooper. Larry Carr actually got on that forum using the screen name Secret, C-K-R-E-T, didn't say that he was an FBI agent, and started sharing things about the case on that forum. And the people were going crazy for it. Um, and they weren't sure who this secret guy is, You know all this cloak and dagger stuff. Uh, eventually, it did come out that it was Larry Carr working on the case. And, and he was using those people to help investigate the case. Uh, and then it ended up going a step further. Uh, and they hired, or they didn't hire, they asked this citizen sleuth team to take a look at it, w- with Tom K leading it.
1: They meaning who? They asked? The FBI? The FBI. OK. The FBI. I just want to confirm that.
0: So, so Tom K and his team get access to all of the evidence the FBI has. The only thing they didn't get access to were personal files, um, suspects that were looked in and whatnot, that being private information. But they got access to the tie, which was really important. So then he was able to look at the tie uh, under an electron microscope and and take a look at it for the first time, really, and was able to pull some exotic materials from the tie, which just added more intrigue and mystery to it. And then years after that, a TV show asked him about it, and he said that, you know, if he had unlimited funds, he would take it to Macron Labs and, and have them look at it. Uh, and then they actually reached out to him, and Macron Labs said they would be willing to do it for free uh, because, because of the story. So Macron took a look at it and found some really exotic uh, metals and uh, phosphates on the tie that weren't, weren't in use a lot in 1971, particularly pure titanium, was found on the tie. Uh, not an alloy or anything, but pure titanium, which would have been super rare in 1971. Uh, Boeing's supersonic transport was using titanium alloys at the time.
1: He might have worked at Boeing is kind of I think is what you're leading up to, right?
0: It, it's possible. It's possible he worked at Boeing. Tom Kay tends to believe it was more from uh, the manufacturing side. Uh, maybe it was a company making stainless steel chemical vats, or uh, t- titanium chemical vats, I'm sorry, just based on the fact that it's pure titanium and not an alloy. But, I mean, Tom Kay also did some of the most interesting research on rubber bands (laughs) that I've ever heard. Um, Because he was trying to determine, would the rubber bands survive? You know, when the eight-year-old boy found the money on Tina Barr, he said the rubber bands were there. But as soon as we picked it up, they just crumbled. So, he wanted to to replicate that uh, and figure out, you know, how long before the rubber bands do this. So, he looked into... What rubber bands were being used in 1971 who was making them uh, and then got essentially the same exact rubber bands that would have been used on those bank bands in 1971 and did a, a bunch of different experiments seeing how long it would last underwater how long they last outside how long they lasted buried. and buried yeah exactly um, and you know, he determined that they they don't last long at all outside. I believe something like within 90 days, you, you know, they're they don't hold their elasticity. Certainly anymore. not eight years. Certainly not eight years. So it is really interesting that the rubber bands were still on the a- bank. Notes. And
1: they didn't survive a float downstream. They had to have been buried on that bar. Wasn't that what he came up with?
0: Yes. Yeah, he he's he's still not sure how the money got there. Uh, he just said, you know, whenever we find out how the money got there, it's going to be something very interesting.
1: Here's, a, here's an odd angle for you. How much was in that bag?
0: The one found on Tina Bar? Yeah. Yeah, it was $5,800. Just 5800
1: Just a piece of the 200000 yep. that he had received. It sounds like either a payoff to someone, and maybe that someone never got the message maybe an accomplice of some sort, or maybe whatever reason he had for doing that, he had change left over and to clear his conscience, left the bag there, maybe sent the lead to someone who didn't get it or didn't understand it, maybe FBI, maybe not, and said, here's what I didn't need.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I've never heard that. He had change left over (laughs) and he didn't want to keep it. I like that.
1: Uh, I mean, nobody knows. One guess is as good as another, right?
0: Yeah, no. but I mean, that's, that's really the only evidence from from the skyjacking is the black clip-on tie left on the plane and the $5,800 ball- $5, that was found nine years later. Hmm. Uh, other than that, there's, there's no real clues or evidence on this.
1: Did the boy get to keep the money?
0: That's a good story. So it ended up being like this long drawn out thing with the FBI. Um and I think they they kept a handful of the bills as evidence, but then they returned the rest of the money to the boy. Oh, good. But it it was years later. And the the bills were pretty much destroyed and I believe he sold he auctioned off most oh, of the yeah, bills okay. individually like on eBay. He
1: probably did okay with that, hopefully. We don't know, but 1979. Ooh, I don't even know if there was eBay in 19. He must have waited quite a while before he could do that. He must have been in his 20s when that finally happened. (laughs) Yeah. Name? Can you? You've had uh, how many guys have you done? How many guys have you interviewed for your podcast?
0: Uh, We have 12 episodes out right now.
1: And maybe name. uh, Maybe go through the story of one or two more, and we just kind of give our listeners a taste for what you've got. And hopefully we're going to send them and get them so deep in the vortex that you can keep them for the next couple of years.
0: Yeah, another, another suspect that's real popular right now that I think is very interesting is Walter Rekka. Uh, kind of goes by two names, Walter Pika and Walter Rekka. So this story came out in 2018, uh, just last year, where there was this Michigan Sport Parachuting Club. That would have these get-togethers years and years later and Walter Recca was one of these members and he ended up telling this story to his best friend Carl Loren about how he was D.B. Cooper, how he pulled this off, gave a bunch of details uh, including where he landed uh, and then walked into a restaurant, interacted with people in the restaurant, and then you know, led a super interesting life after this. So the Walter Recka story I think is interesting because most of the other D.B. Cooper suspects, it's this guy was a genius and he had this all planned out and he didn't leave any stone unturned and all this crazy detail. The Walter Recka story is kind of a bumbling crook and happened to get lucky every step of the way uh, which I think makes the story super interesting. So Walter Recka is living in a small town, uh, like northeastern Washington. I, I'm sorry, I forget the name of the town he's living in at the time. But then essentially takes a bus to the Portland airport, stays in a hotel nearby overnight, hijacks the plane. Um, and then his story, he jumps out of the plane over Clay Elum, Washington, lands uh, in some trees across from a highway, breaks his leg, stashes the chute, and then puts his trench coat over the money bag, walks into a restaurant. While he's in the restaurant, he sees this cowboy-looking dude with a guitar, um, and he goes over to the phone, Walter Recca, to make a phone call to get his friend to come pick him up. And his friend asks him, where are you? And Walt has no idea where he's at, really. Uh, So he looks over to this cowboy looking dude with the guitar and says hey Can you tell my friend where I'm at and give him directions? So this guy gets on the phone gives him directions Gives Walt's friend directions how to get there Now Walt tells this story to his friend Carl Lauren like 40 years after this happened Carl Lauren is actually able to find that guy Jeff Osadich who was driving dump truck at the time and then later became a police officer. And the guy corroborates the story. That night of the hijacking, he saw that guy in a suit that was soaking wet, uh, said his car broke down, and remembers the story perfectly. So, you know, there you kind of have evidence of the night of the hijacking, a man in a suit that's soaking wet uh, with a, a limp or a broken leg kind of makes sense, Uh, but the only thing, the only problem with that is it's so far outside of the FBI's flight path. Uh, If you know Washington State at all, Clay Elam is across the Cascade mountain range to the east, so their story says the pilots chose to fly over the Cascades first to fly south to Reno, and the FBI's flight path is wrong, Um, unless you believe Carl Lauren and, and, and Jeff Osadich.
1: Now, what, what was Osadich doing there? I might have missed that part of your retelling of it.
0: He, he just happened to be in that restaurant. He lived in that town. He was going to play a, a gig at the Grange later that night, a country music gig. Um, so he just happened to be in that restaurant, ran into that guy, and, and remembered it.
1: How in the world, 40 years later, did did our guy trying to track all this down find that guy
0: i i don't know it's amazing i mean he went he went back to that town and all he knew is it was a guy who was probably driving a dump truck who played country music who would have been at this this uh restaurant and so when he went to that town he stopped by a garage and was said you know i'm looking for this guy blah 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 and the guy at the garage said I think you might be talking about Jeff Osadich. He, I think he drove a dump truck uh, back then.
1: Small towns are amazing. You can find out Small towns I agree are with that.
0: like that. <laughs> so they were able to find the guy, track him down, uh, and he was even in the documentary they made about it. I believe the documentary is called D.B. Cooper, The Real Story, uh, but it covers uh, Walter Recca, Walter Pika, And then after the hijacking, he is sort of caught by these mysterious guys uh, and then essentially trained to be a, a CIA or covert <laughs> ops guy. He has all these passports after this.
1: Yikes. Now it's going happened. off the table. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. It's, it gets,
0: the Walter Recka story gets really crazy and really interesting. It
1: sounds neat, though. It's, you know, Whether it's fiction or not, it does sound pretty neat.
0: Yeah. You know, every one of these stories, whether they're fiction or not, all of these people led amazing, very interesting lives. Uh, w- one of my favorite suspects—not not like is, you and
1: I as podcasters, you know. These these guys actually went out there and lived it, right?
0: <laughs> oh, oh, definitely, yeah. Like I said, one of my favorite suspects is Barb Dayton, um, and you know, Barb. She's a woman. She was born Bobby Dayton or Robert Dayton. And then was the first person in Washington State to receive a sex change. I believe it was 1966. She ended up uh, befriending this family called the Foremans uh, years later. And they went flying and hung out with her. And she ended up telling them the story about how she pulled off the D.B. Cooper caper. And all these other wild stories about how when she was a man, she was you know just this badass, tough guy. Uh, and then, you know, later became kind of a docile woman who worked at a library. Well,
1: I can but, see I can see where the 200000 would have been applied.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, she pretty much just threw it away or gave it away or didn't do anything with it. Oh, uh, I according she according paid to the for formans. the operation
1: with that. Okay.
0: No, the operation was before the hijacking. Oh. oh. The, the operation was like in 66, the hijacking in 71. So she would have had to have made herself look more like a man again for the skyjacking and that's the foreman said that's why she did it was she still wanted to prove that she was still tough
1: okay that one's out there
0: that one is (laughs) out there but it's it's really good you know and they uh, she told a bunch of other wild stories to him and then they went to verify they confirmed all the other wild stories so it just sort of made them believe you know if she was telling the truth uh, about being a POW, if she was telling the truth about her time in the Merchant Marines, um, she was probably telling the truth about being D.B. Cooper.
1: Hmm. How many documentaries and books are there out there? Have you Have you ever stopped to count? I, I was um, asking my pr- producer so- here when I when I when I when I got started today. So have you have you seen? It? Yeah, he says I I just saw a documentary within the past year. He says it's an interesting subject.
0: Yeah, the, I think the, the latest uh, documentary to come out is D.B. Cooper, The Real Story, um, came out last year, and that covers Walter Recko, like I was saying. Great documentary. I'd highly recommend it. They have uh, audio tapes in it with him and everything. It's really good. Um, there's a couple of other uh, documentaries and shows that covered it. Um, Expedition Unknown has covered it. Uh, a couple of other TV shows, BuzzFeed, uh, there's a bunch of YouTube videos on it, of course. Uh, there's probably maybe 15 to 20 books on the subject. I've been trying to track them all down and read them all. Um, <laughs> so I- I'm working on that.
1: So you must, you must have an idea that, you kinda, that is at least a seminal idea up in your brain, pretty much of who this guy was. You've, you've done a lot of research on it. What's your opinion on it?
0: My opinion is I don't know. Um, the more I've researched this and the more suspects that I've researched, the more I'm unsure. Um, when I first started on this, the first suspect I was really introduced to was Kenny Christensen. And I thought, okay, um, you know, I've read two books on the subject now. I think it's Kenny Christensen. I'm an expert on the case. And then I started learning about another suspect and comparing them to Kenny Christensen. And then you know a fourth suspect and a seventh suspect, and then they just get compared to each other. And at this point, I, I'm I'm lost. I don't know. I think I think at least ten of the suspects are plausible, but I still I still don't know um, of the, because of those there's ten, still, how many
1: know. how many announced themselves that they were DB Cooper and how many did not? It's about half and half.
0: Yeah, I think two of them announced they were, were D.B. Cooper, sort of deathbed confessions.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and, and like in Barb Dayton's case, she told friends, uh, Walter Rekha, he said he was D.B. Cooper. Uh, Dwayne Weber, deathbed confession to his wife that he was D.B. Cooper. Uh, so, so, so many things you can talk them.
1: about in your last few minutes, you
0: know. Oh, yeah. It, it, it's It's really interesting that several people have admitted to being D.B. Cooper. You know, I've talked to three people personally that their father or uncle was D.B. Cooper. Um, And they all say, you know, for a fact. And it's very interesting. I think one of the reasons for that is in, in the hijacking, no one was physically hurt. There was certainly some emotional stress. You know, you're told that this guy has a bomb on the plane. and uh, you're working the plane. You don't want to die uh, But the plane lands and no one was physically hurt So I think that sort of allows people to root for him as sort of this antihero that stuck it to the man and He didn't murder anyone or anything like that. So I think people will say yeah, it was me uh, just to sort of have that credit as being a legend you know, if, if he did murder a bunch of people, then I'm, I think there would be a lot few people coming forward to say that it was me.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of situations like that. I remember a couple of years ago, I did an episode called Custer's Last Stand, The Last Man Standing. And I found out that there'd been about 100 people step forward and say that they had been with Custer's company when they got annihilated, but that by some strange quirk of fate that they actually survived it. And, of course, <laughs> of course, all of them but one got blown apart, but there actually was a guy. The only way he survived, he was misidentified, and he also entered the service, uh, the U.S. Army Cavalry, under an assumed name. So that name and that name that he entered under, they, uh, they had mixed up with someone else. But his story was very, very plausible on what happened. But it is amazing how many people will step up and say, I was that person. Back in the, back in the 50s, there was a television show called What's My Line? It was pretty cool. They'd have, they'd have three contestants up there, and they would have a panel of people asking them questions. And, the, and the, one of the contestants was the real person. And the way they would introduce it is to say this person was the first female jockey uh, who ever rode in a high-stakes horse race. And you'd have uh, three women sitting up there, two of them imposters. And these people would ask questions. And they would try to mislead you a little bit, you know. And uh, finally, they would have to guess on who the right one was. And sometimes they were right. Sometimes they weren't. Usually the person would be fairly famous, like an Audie Murphy or somebody like that. Or the, or the the oldest man who'd survived the Civil War, you know. They had some interesting ones. But well, be, that's, exactly,
0: that's exactly what's happening in the D.B. Cooper case right now, except instead of three people uh, standing up there, we've got 40 people <laughs> standing up there.
1: Will the real D.B. Cooper please stand up? <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly.
1: Is there anything we missed in today's conversation, something you'd like to add to this mystery?
0: I don't think there's anything I need to add to the mystery. Uh, there's just, there's so much to this case. I mean people have been looking into it the some of the people I've interviewed have spent 10 years of their life or more working on this case talking about this case constantly um it's just an absolutely incredible story nothing like this has has ever happened since where it was remained unsolved it's the only unsolved air hijacking in the world and and no one, like I said, no one was really hurt. So you could sort of investigate it and be interested in it, relatively guilt-free versus a Ted Bundy sort of a story.
1: Have you spoken with any FBI agents who worked on that case, or or who are uh, maybe retired and 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 still working on it off the record? I
0: have. I haven't at this point in time. Hopefully, I could have. I'd I'd love to have Larry Carr on the show. So, Larry, if you're listening, uh reach out to me. I'd love to have you on the show. Uh, but I've heard f- from other people investigating the case, trying to speak with those FBI agents. Outside of Tom K, no one has really had any luck. Um, the foremans have tried to reach out to the FBI with evidence they have on the case. Many other people um, have just haven't heard anything back.
1: And who are the foremans?
0: The Foremans believe it was Barb Dayton, the, uh, the first person to have gender reassignment surgery in Washington State. Okay. That, that a person pulled off the D.B. Cooper caper.
1: How do people find your podcast? And, and also, do you have anybody scheduled coming up within the next yes, weeks? Yes, I have.
0: Yeah, in the next couple of weeks, I have a, a couple of really good interviews scheduled. Uh, I'm going to have Joe Koenig on. Uh, he worked for the FBI as a forensic linguist. He also supports Walter Recca as being D.B. Cooper. He has a book out uh, called Getting the Truth, I am D.B. Cooper. He'll be on the show uh, in the next two weeks. And then I've got Bill Rollins, plans to be on the show also in the next few weeks. Uh, he, ha- he has suspect Joe Lackage, uh super interesting guy, engineer, whose daughter was killed by the FBI uh, in this botched hostage situation. Uh, believes he pulled off the D.B. Cooper hijacking uh, as sort of a revenge against the FBI uh, and the airlines. And then I've also got, coming up on the show, Dr. David Gold, who believes that Frank Morris, who escaped from Alcatraz, committed the Zodiac killer killings and also the D.B. Cooper hijacking. Um, I'm reading his book on it right now. I I told him as soon as I finished his book, we would do the interview. And that's going to be a wild story.
1: Wow. Sounds great. And how do we find your podcast?
0: You can find my podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, Apple Podcast app, Google Podcast, CastBox, Spotify. Wherever you find podcasts, you can find the Cooper Vortex. And then... You could reach out to us if you like. Uh, We're on Facebook and Twitter at The Cooper Vortex, or you can email us at dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com if you would like to talk about D.B. Cooper on the show, or if you know who he is.
1: Darren Schaefer, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been fascinating. I have now been drawn into the D.B. Cooper Vortex, so I'm going to have to try and do my best not to. Not to get wrapped up a whole lot deeper in it, but it's been fascinating. You're right. There is a lot there. And um, I will do my best to listen. I enjoyed listening to the podcast that I did catch very, very much. And I'll do my best to catch up on the rest. So thank you very much for being with us on the show today.
0: Thanks for having me on, John. I had a great time.